Good morning again. If you're online with us, welcome. 101, 102, welcome as well. Um, Brad, I know you had surgery this week, but I just got to tell you the reason for the whole heart thing is that shirt with the A on it and the crimson. It, it causes heart issues. We can get you a Longhorns one and it fixes the problem. No, hey, um, hey, will you take my phone? I don't want it beeping and going. All right, yeah, he's a lineman. <laughs> hey, uh, a couple of things really quickly as we get going this morning. Last week we handed you out prayer cards to be praying for our high school students, our middle school students, our elementary school students. And one clarification, just to make sure everyone's aware of, this is not like secret grandparents where you keep it secret that you're praying for them all year. We would love for you to interact with them, write them cards, let them know, hey, I am praying for you. We care about you. We're for you. And so um, it's not like secret grandparents in that way. So please let them know. The other thing, um, if you want to follow online, I hadn't brought this up in the several, last several weeks, you can go to our Shiloh Road Connect app and click Connect, Worship, and then Sermon Notes. Or you can also scan here, go to our website, shilohroad.com, and there are sermon notes there um, you're welcome to go and find. So, and see, I, I get rid of my phone, but my iPad gets texts, so turn that off. Thanks, Pam. It, it was one of our elders' wives, so. Um. <laughs> so, so a couple weeks ago, um, we went on vacation, went to Breckenridge, Colorado, and if you've ever traveled with young kids in the car, we have four, and we're on our way, and if you're going on vacation, you're heading out, everything is cool. You're relaxed, everyone's smiling, you're stopping because people need to go to the bathroom, you even see sights along the way, hey, there's a volcano in New Mexico that we're going to pass, let's see about stopping there. And you have a great time. But then, the weekends, and you head home. And things become a little more serious, a little more intense. On the way, it's, hey, we'll, we'll drive 10 hours or so, and let's stop and spend the night. And on the way back, we made reservations on the way home to stop and spend the night. And the closer we got, it was, we're almost there. We're going to make it. And so we get to Wichita Falls, which we had hotel reservations for at about 9 p.m. And we said, there's no way we're doing this another day. And so we got in the car and we headed home. And we made it home about 1 a.m. And for me, my bedtime is usually somewhere between 9 and 10 o'clock. So this was like night out, praying we were going to make it. But there is that focus, intensity. We're not spending another day in the, kid, the car with our kids. We, we love them to death. They're amazing. But we need to get home. I would imagine if you were a parent, every one of you can say amen. Yes. You... You take your time going, and it's fun, but coming back, 
there's a little bit more seriousness in wanting to get home. So in this series, we're asking this question. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But we're asking this question, how does Jesus become king? See, on this, this journey that Jesus is on, there is this intensity to it. There is this very much focused agenda. And Mark has been kind of hinting that it's coming up. There's, there's a reason that I'm telling you this story. And finally, towards the end of chapter 10, he says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. So the whole time he's been telling us Jesus is going somewhere. He's headed for something, for a purpose, going somewhere. And we don't really know where until we get here. And he says they were on their way up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. So they're going somewhere. Jesus knows exactly where they're going. They're going towards the cross, and he's been telling them this, and they still don't really grasp it. But he is headed to take his place to become king to take his rightful throne. And he's on the way into Jerusalem for the purpose of confronting the systemic evil that's wreaked havoc on God's good world. That is the very reason he is going. But you need to understand something about this journey. This journey he is on is happening during a time of the year they called Passover. And Passover was this feast where they celebrated the exodus, the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And so thousands upon thousands of people are all making this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Some historians believe there were somewhere between 500,000 and over a million people in Jerusalem for the week of Passover every single year. And so this intensity is building within the city. Jesus is on this mission. He is focused. He is journeying. He is trying to get there. And with that, he has a very specific purpose. And these disciples are with him. They are astonished, but they're also afraid. And they have very differing expectations of what it really means for Jesus to become king. For Jesus, it's very focused. He's known, he's told them that he is going to become king. But it's going to happen through him suffering and dying and sacrificing and laying down his life. And I think the disciples know that he's going to become king. And they know it's going to require sacrifice and laying down their life as well. But it's because they're going to go to battle and fight in this conquest to make sure Jesus is king. They're going to the same place with very differing expectations of what it means and what it looks like as Jesus journeys to become king. And so in chapter 11, they're in Jerusalem. They make it to this place that they have been heading. And in verse 7 it says this, when, when they brought the colt Jesus, or to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. 
And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Going on. Those who went ahead and, okay, there we go. Sorry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And so these words keep showing up throughout this little text as he's quoting back to the Psalms and Isaiah, and it's Hosanna, which basically, if you were to boil it down, it just means God save us now. And blessed is not the word we see blessed in the New Testament where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, Markarios. It's another Greek word, and it really means this this term of greeting, of praise, and of saying, blessed is the coming king of our father David. So this blessing is very much the celebration of this Davidic king who's going to take the throne and reign over Israel. That is what these disciples are looking for. That is what they are wanting. And so here, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he enters as this triumphal king. He's ushered into this city. And yet a week later, he will be led out of the city as a failed revolutionary, sentenced to die on a cross to everyone who's watching. It seems like Jesus' focused journey to Jerusalem to become king has failed. This has to be the end of the road. But for Jesus, it is exactly where he knew these steps would lead. And then, following this story, there are two stories that are packaged together that at first glance seem kind of out of place if you really don't understand what is happening. And so what we encounter next is what theologians call a Markan sandwich. Let me explain what Mark does here. So he'll start a story, story A, with an introduction, and he'll just tell the beginning of story A. And then he'll move to story B, and in story B, he will tell you the whole story, the intro and conclusion, and then he will come back to story A with the conclusion that he began here. And the reason that's important is because these two stories that he tells, both A and B, are dependent on each other for understanding what he is talking about. And so a great example of this was earlier in our text, where Jesus, or Mark, is telling the story about a guy named Jairus who has a daughter who's sick and a woman who has been bleeding. And so he starts the story with this woman, or with Jairus, whose daughter is sick. And so story A, he introduces the sick woman or the sick girl. And then he moves directly into this lady who's crawling through the crowd, trying to touch the hem of his garment so that she would be healed. And she touches it. And Jesus says, I felt the power that passed from me, that's left me. I know something that's happened. And then she is healed. 
And then he comes back to story A that he began with as he goes to the home of Jairus' daughter. Okay? So you understand how this works. And there's about six or seven different times Mark uses this literary structure in the 16 chapters to kind of explain. But you have to understand these stories come as a package deal. And you don't understand one without understanding the other. And so the very next thing that happens is Jesus tells this story in Mark chapter 11, and he begins with an intro about a fig tree. And then the very next part, he tells about Jesus going into the temple and clearing it out, and then he comes back to the story of the fig tree that he began with. Make sense? So this is Mark's version of this story, and like I said, you have to understand the context of both stories to grasp what's happening. And so we're actually going to start here in the middle with Jesus clearing the temple. And then we're going to come back to the outside of this, and I hope that it kind of brings it home and helps it make sense. So going to, to verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the, the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into the temple. And, and understand this. He's been journeying to Jerusalem. He's got to get somewhere. And the night before this, he gets to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple and basically says, uh, it's kind of late. Let's go home. And he leaves. And then he comes back the next day and he walks into the temple and he starts turning things over and really kind of casting judgment on people. And it seems really strange in context that Jesus, who's going to suffer and die, is causing such a scene. But one of the, the most important questions is, why in the first place are they buying and selling in the temple? Why, why are they have people here who are changing money out, who are buying and selling animals? And it goes back to the sacrificial system. So people are journeying to Jerusalem from sometimes hundreds of miles to come and offer their sacrifices at Passover. And at Passover, they were supposed to offer this perfect, unblemished land. But as you can imagine, on a journey of this type, your lamb would be very difficult to make it all the way to Jerusalem on this journey without becoming unblemished. And so they actually had people in the temples that would sell unblemished lambs at the time of Passover. They would sell doves for people to offer their sacrifices to God. And the way I was always taught during this story is that what Jesus is really mad about is some really unfair business practices. That these people are marking them up they're selling things. They're using their position for their own leverage. But that's not really what's happening. Did that happen? Could it? Absolutely. 
Would Jesus be upset? Probably so. But it's so much bigger than just simply unfair business practices in the temple. Jesus is confronting a system that's lost its bearings, that's really forgotten what it's about. So in verse 17, as he confronts them, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And typically when we think about someone being a robber, we think of someone walking up, taking something that doesn't belong to them or um, using their position to get more. And so, well, this lamb is probably, you know, $50, and so we're going to charge $75 because you can't. And that's what we think of when we think of robbing. But this word that's used here in the Greek for a den of robbers, probably the best English, English word we have for it is a brigand. And a brigand is a member of a gang who hides out and ambushes unsuspecting people to rob them. And if you're like me, this is one of those words that you probably never heard in English unless you read a lot of older literature. I mean, I had to Google it to figure out what it was. But this brigand is this gang of, who hides out and ambushes unsuspecting people to rob them. And so if these unsuspect, unsuspecting people are coming to the temple to worship, if to offer their sacrifices... And it's not about the money. Then what is it that they are taking from them? What is it that they are ambushing them for and stealing from them? And it is their identity. But let me tell you a story. This is a story, a picture. Actually, it's a mugshot of a man named Thomas Parkin. This next picture is also a picture of Thomas Parkin. Thomas is the woman in red. Thomas's mom died, and so he decided it would be a great idea to steal her identity to continue to receive her benefits. And for six years, he dressed as an elderly lady with a walker with these massive sunglasses and went to claim her benefits. And he was able to get away with it for six years. And you think, well, there's, there's not a lot of harm. I mean, you know, ethically it's terrible. The money side is terrible. But when Thomas takes her identity, it really doesn't matter to her. But when I say these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, the people that were controlling this system are taking their identity. What they are taking there at the temple is incredibly significant. He is, they are stealing the identity of these people. And you say, okay, well, wait, what, what identity are they stealing? What, what is it they're taking? Okay, I want to back up one sentence real quick in verse 17. My house, as Jesus is teaching, is it not written, <clears throat> excuse me, my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. My house is going to be a place 
where people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues are welcome to find my embrace. My, my temple, the place I dwell, is to be this beacon of hope and light for people who do not know me to come to me and find peace. It is to be a place for all nations, which brings up this really, really, really important question. Was the temple intended to be a place of inclusion or exclusion? Was it a place that was to welcome people to come and find out who God was? To, to find God's love for the world that he's been pursuing? Or was it a place that was meant to keep people out because they were not welcome and they did not belong? Understand this. The temple was the place God dwelt and God had been pursuing these people and inviting them to be part of the kingdom. And yet it was the religious leaders that controlled the guest list. They were the ones who got to decide who came in, who was welcomed, who was important. And more than inviting people in to experience God, they were intent on keeping people there's a story we all are super familiar with, and Brenton read the end of it this morning. It's the story of the prodigal son. And as we hear that story over and over, we know the point is God's extravagant grace for the son that's left home, gone off and done all he wanted, and comes back begging for grace and forgiveness from the father, and he finds it there. And we assume that is the point. That God is embracing and welcoming home those who are lost until we get to the very end of the story. Because when we get to the end of the story, the light has come up on another brother. A brother who is angry at his father for welcoming that lost brother back into the feast and celebrating his return. So angry that even though his father invites him into the feast, he refuses to go in because of who else has been invited, because of who has been celebrated. And what Jesus is mad about in the temple, we, we, we've heard it said, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is not going in with Clorox wipes to clean up a mess and unfair business practices. He is going into the temple to condemn the entire system that has completely lost its way. And it is stealing people's identities in the fact that there are people who are searching for the love of the Father, God their creator, and they cannot come in and be a part of what God is doing because the religious leaders control the guest list. And they're not allowing people to come to God to experience His love. 
And one of the most profound ways they they do it is not just from pushing them out, but it's through pretending like their life is free of problems. And if you can't be as holy and religious and perfect as we are, then you are not welcome. Jesus is confronting the system. But as we began with, there's this story, and it's this Mark and Sandwich. And you have the fig tree, and then you have the clearing of the temple, and then you come back to the fig tree. And, and I want you to see something. Because as Jesus clears the temple, I want, to, I want you to see what happens. Because this starts to become a really important theme that we'll see over the next several weeks. In verse 18, here's what they say. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed. They're so upset. Because this is what the temple was designed for. It was designed for people to come and find Jesus. But their systems excluded them. You go back to Solomon. Even Solomon dedicating the temple. This is in 1 Kings. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name, and your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm when they come and they pray toward this temple. That it was this place of invite. And along the way, Israel forgot their divine vocation to bear the image of God and represent Him in this world so that the world would know what God is like through His people. They lost sight of this. And so here is... This sandwich where he clears, where he has the fig tree intro, clears the temple, and then the fig tree. But then the question is okay, so if the whole story is about clearing the temple, then what in the world does a fig tree withering and dying have to do with Jesus clearing the temple? So let's go back to the very first part of the story, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, that means in full bloom, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, if you were in this culture at this time, my assumption is you would know that. This is not the time for figs. But yet the tree is in full bloom. And so he goes over to the tree, and there are no figs on it. And so, then he said to the tree, Jesus talks to trees, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Which is kind of a weird story right here. But you need to understand this simple little math equation right here, okay? A fig tree 
that is in full bloom equals fruit. A fig tree in full bloom equals fruit. In other words, the tree looks like it should be full of fruit. But the leaves are concealing what's underneath. The leaves are hiding the condition of the tree. It's not in season. It shouldn't be bearing fruit. But it looks like it does. That is Jesus' problem with the temple. The temple is the place where God dwells. And God is pursuing all people out of a love and passion for them. It looks the part. But instead of being the place where people find the welcome embrace of God, they are shut out and told they don't belong. Jesus is acting out a living parable for them. Because the fig tree is not the problem. The fig tree represents the problem. And the problem is the temple. And then we said there's that last part, that conclusion to story A. And it's right here. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus is condemning system. He is condemning the temple and its practices and its leaders. Why? Because the people that were supposed to be representing God in this world were not doing it. You see, they wore this facade. This facade that caused people to think they could never live up to what God wants them to be. This facade that said there is no chance that God is pursuing you and loving you because of who you are and what you've done and where you have been. And so for the people on the outside looking in, they feel there is no hope, and Jesus is condemning that belief because he is here to invite all people to him because God so loved the world that he gave his son. But the problem in this story for you and I 
is not necessarily those on the outside looking in. It is a big part of the problem. But the problem in this story for you and I is the people who are on the inside who make it difficult for those on the outside to find Jesus. To pretend that we have it all together when really we don't. See, we learned a really important lesson very early in the garden, and I think we see it here again. Fig leaves allow us to control what other people see. In the garden, as their nakedness is exposed, they grab some fig leaves to cover up. And in the same way, you and I do the same thing. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Is it possible to make your heart appear better than it is? Is it possible to make your motives more holy than they are? Is it possible to make your desires appear more pure than they are? In other words, is it possible to show up week in and week out acting like you have it all together? And yet inside, you're crumbling. Because it's really possible to preach a sermon and not live it out. It's possible to pray and for your heart to still be full of lust. It's possible to sing how great thou art, and inside it's all about how great I am. It's possible to know, read, and memorize Scripture and have no clue who the God who wrote it with his hand is. See, and the reason I know it's possible because it happens to me. My assumption is it happens to you as well. We can pretend all we want. We can play the game all we want. Jesus has a problem with it. And the problem is the person who is the most deceived by our actions is actually ourself. Because those on the outside, over time, they're going to get a glimpse of what's going on in here. And the, the person we're trying to please the most knows everything that's going on here. The person who's the most deceived 
is the one who's playing the game. This morning, I want to just ask a question. How is your heart, your motives, your desire? Because God can grow them. And God can use them. But I think what God refused to work with was something that appeared to be something it was not. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark's inspired words. That, Father, open up a new world to us of text. But, Father, more than that, they cause us to look inside and to see hearts that so often lose their way. They become consumed with looking right more than being right. Motives that we want to look right more than be right. Desires we want to look right more than be right. Father, would you give us a passion today to help people, all people, know they are loved and embraced and welcomed to you. Father, forgive us when we mess up. And on this journey, Father, don't move towards the cross, but try to move towards a throne, a throne that is not ours. Father, we love you. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for grace and mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any need this morning, we could pray for you, help you as you begin a journey with Jesus. We're going to have our shepherds in the back of the auditorium. Whatever we can do to help you as you follow Jesus, let us know while we stand and we sing.